Well, hi there. I'm Bo Stern Brady, and I'm so excited that you are with me wherever you are. Um, one question people ask me a lot that I always try to start with is if the name Bo is short for anything, and actually it is. It's short for Bonita, but the N-I-T-A is silent. I always like to say that. And my mom actually would say that the NITA is the only thing about me that's ever been silent. So we're about to be noisy together during this workshop. And I'm so excited that you've you've chosen to take time and listen. And, and what I want to do is wherever you are, because I really believe that this is the providence of God, that this is not just what we're doing, but the way that we're doing it. He's orchestrated this conference to become exactly what it's become. It's not second best. It's not plan B. This is what God has wanted. And so what I'd love for you to do is wherever you're sitting right now, would you just plant your feet on the floor in front of you and say today's date, whatever date it is that you're listening to this, just say that date out loud. So your feet are firmly planted on this date on the timeline of human history there has never been this day before. There will never be this day again. This is your moment on this timeline. And I believe that God wants to speak into this place on your timeline, something that will change the rest of the, your days and how you walk them out. I think his word is powerful and true and life-changing. And so I want to just ask him now to step onto this moment, step onto our timeline Come into this uh, messy world that we call home. Come into the places of our hearts that are battle-scarred and broken and beautiful and hopeful and discouraged and wanting and lonely and overflowing. All the places in all the hearts. Would you step in here, God? The God who made every heart knows every heart and can speak to you in exactly the place that you are and in exactly the way that you need to hear on this very day. I can't do that, but he can do that. He can speak every language today. He can speak into every relevant moment and he can do it in a way that brings us closer to him than we've ever been. And so thank you, God, for being here with us as we launch in to an examination at the way you work inside of battle. In your name we pray, amen. So of all the things that I love in this world, I probably love a good story the most. And because I was a theology major at 16, the stories found in the Bible have been like friends to me for a very long time. And something I love about the stories of the Bible is that even if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, they still pack this big punch and especially those, like even people who have never spent a day in church often will know uh, about some of the bigger than life Bible stories like David and Goliath. As you remember, David was a small shepherd who takes on a big bully, Goliath, at the request of the king whose name is Saul. And David, against all the odds, takes the giant down. And the story, in my mind, ends with him carrying the bloody head of Goliath off of the battlefield as the crowds cheer and the women swoon. And it's just such an iconic story that we use it even as an axiom. Like when some underdog beats a bad guy in the Olympics or business or basketball, we say it was a real David and Goliath story. And yeah, that, that's part of the story, but only the first part. 
As we read along inside of that story, we discover that David becomes quite wildly successful and the people begin to compare him to Saul. They say Saul has killed thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. And clearly that's hyperbole. That's not actually true. He hadn't killed tens of thousands, but, but the people believe David is better than anything they've seen before. And then the story goes on to say that Saul was very angry and eyed David jealously from that day forward. So David is an everything right and through no fault of his own is on the very bad side of a very bad king. Saul decides the way to get rid of David is not to kill him himself, but rather to put him out in front of the Philistines every single day, day after day after day, David lands on the same battlefield fighting the same enemy. I have a question, sister. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you wake up every day on the battlefield of financial ruin or just not enough? Or have you felt like you wake up every day on the battlefield of a broken marriage or on the battlefield of depression or on the battlefield of paralyzing fear or on the battlefield of a heartbreak with a child? Have you ever felt like every day it feels like the same battle and you just can't get your head above water enough to see what would look like a normal day outside of the battle in which you're living? This is David's life. After having defeated the biggest, the biggest enemy, after having done the most with his muscles and his talent and his bravery, he keeps landing against the very same enemy. Um, so Saul decides that he's going to put him there. It says, then the Philistine princes, and this is how Saul's strategy backfires horribly. Uh, the, it says that then the Philistine princes came out to battle and when they did so, David had more success and behaved himself more wisely than all Saul's servants so that his name was very dear and highly esteemed. Can you wrap your brain around this? Saul would have been better off hiding David away and keeping him safe after his big win against Goliath. It would have been much wiser to put him in a battle museum or something where people could admire the guy who did that one cool thing that one time. But instead, all that time on the battlefield makes David more skilled and more strong and far more famous. In fact, that time on the battlefield is exactly what prepares David to take Saul's place as king in Israel just a decade later. This time against a very big bully, and then in opposition to a very bad king, prepares David for the job description God has always intended him for. So in September of 2010, I, I had been married at that point 25 years to the love of my life. We met in Bible college and we got married two years in back when, you know, it's the second year of Bible college, you got to get married. And so, no, I loved him a lot. And we got married and we had... Um, children. We had three daughters and we were loving having being parents and we were loving being done having children. And we put away all the baby stuff and we sold all the, all the, the stuff you have to have to have a baby. And we were glad that we were done. And then of course we got pregnant and had a son and we're so, we were so glad to have four kids and, and our life was normal, beautiful, hard, frustrating, good. I had a really normal kind of marriage, not a perfect one. Um, and, but Steve was always the strongest man in any room. He always had been strong and hadn't had a single physical issue his whole life that I knew of. And, and then one day 
he came home and he said, I don't know, maybe you, you have a husband who can gauge his health by his golf swing. That's how my husband could do. And uh, he came home one day and he said, Bo, something is wrong with me. My golf swing is easily 40 yards short. And I was like, oh no, what are we going to do? And he went to the doctor and got a series of misdiagnoses. And then I looked out the window one day when he was mowing the lawn and I saw him mowing, the, pushing the mower with one hand and holding his head up with the other. And I thought, oh man, this is not right. This can't be right. And I still wasn't super worried, but we made an appointment. We ended up in the office of a neurologist in a beautiful fall day in fall of September 2010. And during that appointment, all I can tell you is that Goliath walked in. He walked in and he challenged us to a fight. And I could feel him and smell him. And I knew we were gonna, we were in for the fight of our lives. And it took five more months, but we eventually landed on a diagnosis of ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is a disease that slowly paralyzes its victims until only their eyes and brain function. And so it was a devastating diagnosis. In fact, we spent five months praying and pleading with God for it to be anything else. But on the day that he was diagnosed, we took our our oldest daughter and her husband with us to that appointment. And on the way home, we stopped at a restaurant and we raised our glasses to life. And Steve said, I guess we've just been called to the ALS community. We just got our ticket in. And so that began a process, a long, slow process of Steve losing his abilities, but gaining so much freedom in so many other ways. He slowly began to lose the ability to walk and talk and swallow he, I remember the day that he gave me his golf clubs and we sent them to a missionary in Africa because he knew he wouldn't be using them anymore. I remember the day that he gave up the keys to his car because he knew it wasn't safe to drive anymore. I remember the day the wheelchair showed up and we left it in our garage for three months because we just couldn't bear to look at it. I remember the day he said, I want to take you out for Valentine's Day dinner, but you're going to have to feed me. It takes a really brave man to let his wife feed him in public in a small town where everyone knows you. I remember the day that we decided he needed to have a feeding tube put in, and we went to the hospital to have it done, and the doctor said, honestly, you've waited too long, and you're in such difficult shape that there's a good chance you won't make it out of this surgery. And we didn't know that we were in that position and we were making a life or death decision in that moment. And I remember just hugging each other and crying and praying and trying to decide whether to do it. And Steve said, I, I need to say a final goodbye to the kids. I said goodbye to them when I left today, but I didn't say goodbye, goodbye. So we went home, had that time with our kids and rescheduled the surgery for a week later. It was decisions like that that were, were just inherent inside of this very treacherous battlefield that we were facing one thing that happens with ALS patients is they lose their ability to swallow. And so we were able to feed him through a tube in his stomach, but that didn't stop him from producing saliva. In fact, did you know that you produce two liters of saliva a day? That means just last night, as you slept, you produced a bunch of saliva and managed to swallow it without choking to death. So good job. You did something really, really good and life-saving last night and didn't even know it. But for Steve... 
we had to suction that saliva out or he would choke to death in his sleep. And so there were nights where I would get him up six or seven times and it was a big process to get a paralyzed man up into a wheelchair with a neck brace on so you could suction him out and get him back into bed. And we just were sleepless and depleted and it was such a difficult time. And we felt God in it, but it was very, very hard. And then about... Oh, I remember when when he went on hospice in November, uh, we thought he probably had about two months left in 2014. And our daughter and son-in-law came to Thanksgiving dinner. And when our son-in-law was praying over the dinner, he prayed, thank you, God, for this food and this family and for the baby that is now growing inside of Whitney. And so we realized we were going to have another grandchild. and, And Steve said, when are you due? And she said, July. And he said, well, that's my new goal then. And we were so worried about it because we didn't think he would last through Christmas. And so on July 6th, 2015, Phineas Brave was born. And he was born just 30 seconds from our house at the hospital. And Whitney and Corian got up in the morning and they pushed the nurses to let them out. They said, we've got to get him to see his grandfather. And they got that baby to their grandfather and we propped him up on a pillow in Steve's lap. And Steve cried and prayed a blessing over him. And it was like watching a Simeon moment as one very helpless man and another very helpless man kind of high-fived on their way through. And it was beautiful. And 12 days later, Steve woke up in the morning and wasn't feeling well. And and I got him up like I always did. And I, I went to the store real quick while his caregiver took care of him. And later in the, in the morning, all our family happened to be there. And he went into cardiac arrest. And we knew this was it. And But but for four years, I had been saving his life. I had been making these decisions to rescue him on his battlefield. And I knew that that wasn't the moment. But my instinct, everything in me was to try to rescue him. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, help him home. And so... I got up next to his ear in his wheelchair and I just began to tell him everything that he had meant to us in all the ways he had lived the most beautiful life. And I began to tell him all the things that were just around the corner for him. I said, you're about to be free and you're about to dance. And I must have told him 20 times you're about to have the best meal of your life because he had gone 20 months without eating any food. And it was this moment of just like it was almost like a midwife labors to bring a life into the world it was like laboring to bring a life into the next world and then at 11:52 with the song beauty for ashes playing in the background he flew away home and i fell at his feet in his wheelchair and i cried out my gratitude to jesus for the gift that was steve stern And I had a moment, a mental picture in my mind where I saw Steve in heaven doing the very same thing, crying his tears on the feet of Jesus and thanking him for his life. And without any why me's, without any how could you's, it was all gratitude, all grace. And I went to bed that night and I woke up a a widow and alone for the first time in 30 years and I felt small small and scared and uh, afraid to step out again 
But God began to speak to me how to move forward. And he began to show me all the things that he had deposited inside of me during that fierce fight. He had shown up to help us fight and he had gone with us into battle. And it's hard because ALS is just so, so difficult. And since walking through this sickness quite publicly, I've met countless people experiencing such treacherous circumstances. There's so much loss and heartache, and I have heard I don't know how many stories. And the question usually becomes this. People ask, tell me their stories, and as they tell me through their tears, their story leads up to a question something like, where was God in this? Why does he let bad things happen to good people? And often the question lurking at the heart of it all is, is he mad at me or indifferent? Because if he were good, wouldn't my life look better than this? Jesus himself told a story with this same kind of theme. He told about two men who built houses. One built his house on the sand and then a storm came and that house crashed flat. I actually loved singing that song when I was growing up in Sunday school. Did you sing it? That song of, um, and the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down and the floods came up, the rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand went smash. And we love doing the smash part. And so Matthew seven twenty six tells us the application of that actual story. He says, everyone who hears my word and does not do it will be like a man who built his house upon the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great and complete was the fall of it. Well, I do not want to be that guy. I am a rule follower by nature and I really want to do the right thing. I want to stay out of trouble And this is big trouble. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and Aramaic. So sometimes the English translation doesn't quite capture the full meaning. And so in the Greek, the word for storm that hit this guy's house, this particular storm, the the word means four winds. It's winds from every direction. This is not one of those rainy fall days when you cozy up under a blanket with tea and pride and prejudice and you're just going to sit out the sweet little storm. This is a hurricane. This is a disaster. It's 9-11. It's Hurricane Katrina. It's a pandemic. This is the day a spouse walks out the door. This is the day a child dies. This is the day a business goes bankrupt. This is the day you get a terminal diagnosis. This is a life-altering, earth-shaking storm. And I do not want a storm like that. So I'm going to be really careful to follow all the rules and do the right thing and pay my tithes and pay my dues and show up on time and check the boxes because I do not want to face that kind of catastrophe. The problem with that plan is two verses earlier. Matthew seven twenty four says this. So everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a sensible man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. It seems to me that no matter how hard we try to build right and be right, the storm still hits both houses. The difference is not in the size of the storm, but in the strength of the house. If you've been blaming the size of your storm, it's time to start working on building a stronger house. 
I'm finding that trials, while so difficult to endure, can also do so much to strengthen whatever it is we're trying to build, especially to strengthen the foundation of that thing. There is beauty buried in the soil of our battlefields. I mean, just a few of the things that have come from mine. The first one is because of my battle with ALS and because of the battle of of losing a spouse to a terminal illness, I have now much greater compassion for those around me. In fact, I, I don't even love calling it compassion because I feel like that's sort of a weak word. I, I like to call it a prophetic empathy that comes into the hearts of those who have experienced deep pain and deep suffering. There's a, a word in the New Testament and it's the Greek word thalipsis. And it's used a lot of times, actually, in the New Testament, almost 50 times. And, and it, it means a pressing that produces uh, something greater than you could have had without the pressing. So it's kind of pressing an olive that produces olive oil or pressing a grape that produces grape juice or, or, or um, pressing um, just an orange and you get this beautiful fresh juice out of it. It's a pressing that produces it destroys the original component, but it you end up with something much better. And Paul uses it in Acts 14. He says, it's through much thalipsis that we enter the kingdom of God. So this word thalipsis, the bad news is in, in the English, it's the word for tribulation or trial or suffering. It's through much suffering that we enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Is it that God's just sort of uh, mean-spirited and he kind of has a gauntlet we've got to run through in order to get to his presence? I don't think so. I think suffering pushes us into the kingdom because that's when we know we need it most. Uh, The word for kingdom in the Greek, incidentally, is the word citadel. And I love the word citadel because it's sort of this medieval, awesome, powerful word. And it means the throne, the throne room, the the inner sanctum, the, the seat of power. This is where the good stuff is. And so Uh, When Steve was probably a year or two into his diagnosis with ALS, the ALS Association invited us to go to Washington, D.C. with a bunch of other ALS patients and their caregivers and and, uh, physicians and scientists and just all people inside the ALS community. And we went to Washington, D.C. to uh, appeal to Congress for funding for research. It turns out that uh, military personnel are diagnosed with ALS 50% more than anyone else. And we don't understand why. And so we were appealing to the Department of Defense for for funding for research. And there was one day where we all were making our way to to Capitol Hill, where we were going to sit down with our congressmen and women and their aides and present our case and tell our stories and ask them to vote just that week they were going to vote on a bill that would would give millions of dollars for ALS research and so on that particular day President Obama had scheduled a press conference out on the lawn of the White House which meant everything got pushed back all the security perimeters got pushed back so we loaded all these ALS patients up into buses and they were in all kinds of different levels of of disability there were in they had walkers and wheelchairs some of them had tracheotomies and were on ventilators most of them weren't able to move or speak they were in difficult, difficult levels of, of, uh, disability. 
and their caregivers were working very hard to get them. We had to walk probably a mile and a half just to get to the Capitol. And once we got to the Capitol, there was a gauntlet of security and, and a labyrinth inside of how you get places. And, and it's all an old building. So it's not very wheelchair friendly. So we're going up freight elevators to try to make it to these appointments so that we can appeal to our congressmen for money, for research. And at the end of the day, I'm telling you, I was as tired as I have ever been as worn out and exhausted and depleted, but it was one of the most satisfying days I've ever had. And it was interesting when I thought about it later, and we got the funding, by the way, so it was very successful. But when I thought about it later, I thought Steve and I had been to Washington, D.C. two times before that. We love D.C. And we had gone to museums and restaurants, and, and we had seen sites and monuments, but we had never once gone to see our congressman. We had never once tried to sit down with a congresswoman and ask for anything, even though they were just as available then. They were just as present. They were in the same place they had always been, but we had never been willing to give up our time doing things that we wanted to do because we didn't need them. We didn't have a felt, we didn't perceive that we needed anything from them. So we didn't press into their presence. And that I think is what Paul is telling us about suffering. Suffering creates a doorway to the presence of God because we know we need him. It moves us into the heart of the kingdom and it matters and it births in us a greater compassion and a greater empathy for the people around us. It, it, it pushes us not just to feel sorry for them, but to press in for them, to become something for them, to stand in the gap. And it is a beautiful thing. Another thing that suffering has done in my life is it's produced an awareness of how to serve people most effectively. In fact, let's talk about that for one minute because people ask me all the time, what do I do for my hurting friends? I'm so afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing that I don't say anything or I don't do anything and I feel paralyzed by it. And I think that's a great question. The closer you are to people, I think the more latitude you have in general. If you're far out on a circle, you need to be really careful what you say. If you're closer in, you may have a little more room. But a really good place to land, I think, and at least in the things that we say, is in these four statements. I don't think you can go wrong with these four statements. The first one is, I'm sorry. I'm just sorry. And say I'm sorry without connecting it to anything you've experienced or anything you've been through. Just I'm sorry. The second thing is, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I don't know what to do with all of your pain, but I'm not afraid of it. I don't see you as a tragedy. I'm here for you. I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. That is really big. I had one friend during our fight with ALS who called herself my two in the morning friend because she said, I don't sleep well. I'm the person you can call if you are awake at two in the morning and you need to talk or cry or laugh or something. And she was invaluable to me in the fight because I knew she was there for me in the middle of the night. The third thing you can say is, I'm praying for you. And I don't think you have to apologize for that or back it up with something else. Just, I'm praying for you. And then really do it. And the last thing is, I believe in you. 
I believe in you, even though you're outside your level of capacity, even though you fill in over your head, even though you've never walked this way before, even though I know you don't have all the answers, I still believe in you and I believe in Jesus in you to be able to come out of this better, stronger, and more beautiful than you've ever been. I believe in you. I'm not your savior and I don't feel sorry. I mean, I've We have sorrow for people who are going through things. We have compassion, but it's hard when you're in the middle of such a deep storm to feel like everyone's looking at you like a tragedy. And so I'm sorry, I'm here, I'm praying, and I believe in you. I think are really powerful things to be able to say, and those things can serve people when they're in over their heads, when they're in the most difficult times of their lives, and then really mean it when you say you're there, mean it when you say you're praying. I think that's so important. And then another thing that I took out of my battle with suffering is an understanding of my own strength and with it, greater bravery than I've had before. So I remember uh, right before Steve died, I was frustrated and depleted and life felt like it I felt like I was drowning and I was trying to hold up a um, another human in it and then all my kids as well and to keep everyone from drowning and I was so frustrated and tired and and I I did what I think everyone should do when they're feeling really frustrated and afraid I posted on Facebook (laughs) actually no that's probably not the right way but what I did was I said something like my life right now is mostly trying to figure out what to do with what remains when plan A falls apart, what to do with plan B when plan A falls apart. And I went and I had a lot of people chime in and give me their support. And yeah, poor you, poor Bo, we're sorry. This is so hard, all of that stuff. And I went to bed that night and something just wasn't sitting well with me about what I had said. And I began to ask the Lord about it. And I just said, Holy Spirit, show me the truth of your heart. I think I said something that wasn't really right. What What's right in that? And I remember him coming to me and just saying so clearly, this isn't plan B. I mean, I thought I would be married to Steve for 60 years. I thought we would grow old together and and rock our grandchildren together and see all our kids get married together and retire at the retirement home together. I thought that would happen But God reminded me, I've always known the way your life would go. I knew your marriage would be 30 years. This is not part B. This is not plan B. This is just part two of plan A. Are you ready for part two of plan A? But part two of plan A sounded so scary to me. It sounded so scary to risk loving again. It sounded so scary to to, to just stick my head out and try anything again. And I wanted mostly just to be small and stay back and be a, be little and stay out of the way. And 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 so my my kids have always been frustrated with me because I've never read The Hobbit and I've never watched the movie and it drives them crazy. And they've tried everything to get me to read it and listen to it and whatever. And I just never have wanted to do it. I don't really love fantasy. It's just not, doesn't interest me much. And they even pulled out their last stop when they said, Mom, your sermons would be so much better if you would just read The Hobbit. And so about two months after Steve died, my, my son and I had to make a trip over the mountains and it was a snowy uh, mountain day. It was Thanksgiving weekend, I remember, and there was snow on the mountains. And I said, let's get a book on Audible to listen on our way. 
And Josiah said, okay, let's get the Hobbit. And I was like, ah, shoot. Okay. So we did it. We downloaded the Hobbit. And as we're driving over the mountain, it was kind of lovely because there's all the snow and the scenery fit in with what the book felt like. But I was getting so frustrated as I listened to it because poor Bilbo Baggins, I mean, all he wants is to curl up in his hobbit hole with his cake and his tea and a little blanket. And I'm telling you what, that is me. I I am Bilbo without the bill. I'm just Bo who wants to live in a hobbit hole and read a good book. But he keeps getting swept along into all this misadventure by the gnomes or the dwarfs or whatever they are. I know, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't pay as close attention as I should have. But he keeps getting swept along into more and more frustrating and dangerous places when all he wants is to get back to safety. And there's this moment where Gandalf says to him, there are no safe paths in this part of the world. You are over the edge of the wild now. And in for all in for all sorts of fun wherever you go. And I heard that on that book. And when Josiah got out of the car, I replayed it like 30 times until I had it memorized. You are over the edge of the wild now and in for all sorts of fun wherever you go. And I remember sitting in my car thinking, I think that's where I am. I think that that this battle has pushed me out into a territory I never wanted to be. But what if this territory is more beautiful and more brave and more adventurous than I ever dreamed I could go? What if this takes me to places that are beyond what my safe imagination would have built for me before? And I determined in that moment, I'm going to say yes to scary things. I'm going to say yes to hard things. I'm going to say spirit-led yeses to the adventure that God has for me as a single woman. And I began to say yes to to some, it may sound silly, but I said yes to a walk in the snow at midnight, which I never would have done before because I'm afraid of the dark. And in that walk, I felt the peace of God. I felt to meet me there and his companionship there. I said yes to wild generosity, to giving things away that I really thought I needed, to letting go of money that I really thought I needed for my future, to being willing to invest in people and to, to be generous with my approval and, and, and with my love and with my acceptance. I said yes to uh, spending a month in Italy, just living there and in, in enjoying the culture and becoming one with that beautiful place, something I never would have dreamed I would have done before. I said yes to all kinds of things. I said yes to starting a new business. I said yes to cutting back on on my regular job that provided a steady income so that I could launch out into new and bigger things. It was this brilliant time. And then finally, I said yes to falling in love again, the scariest yes of all. And in July of last year, I said a permanent forever yes to the second love of my life. And it is the bravery that was built in my heart through the treacherous days and nights on the battlefield of ALS that released me to the next phase of my life. So another thing that happened as a result of my battle, was a new certainty in the goodness and the character of God. People are so funny about how they value character, and I really have come to believe that character really matters a lot. I mean, even in the political spectrum of the last two decades, we begin to devalue what character means, and we say, we just want a good leader. He doesn't have to have good character. She doesn't have to have good character. Just a good leader. That's all we need. 
but really we wouldn't even we wouldn't even do that for a bathroom remodel. If I told you I have the best tile guy in all of the world and he's going to do the most beautiful job on your counters and you should definitely hire him. Oh, except he might steal some of the stuff from your house while he's there. No one would do that. No one, we care about character. If we care about it in our bathroom remodel, we ought to care about it in our country and we care about it in our life. And we also ought to care about it in our God. But many people look at God and secretly house these doubts in his character. Like maybe he's good, maybe he's not. Maybe he blesses, maybe he punishes. So understanding the goodness of God as it shows up in your battlefield is so important. And I found that it makes all the difference in people who become better and more beautiful through battle or people who become more bitter through battle. I wrote a book. I don't want to push my stuff during this talk, but I wrote a book called Ruthless, Knowing the God Who Fights for You. And it's a devotional that's 30 days inside the character of God. Every day we look at a different aspect of his character so we can truly get to know him, not just know about him, but know him, know his character. And that book is available on Amazon. If you want to pick it up, go through it, commit yourself to knowing God's character because it makes such a difference as we face the fights of our life. And then another thing that I found was credibility in a community of suffering people that I wouldn't have had any other way. There was no way for me to ever step into the ALS community and say, listen, Jesus loves you and he's for you when I'm sitting here living outside of any of the understanding of their circumstances. But having a doorway in has meant everything to me. It's meant the world to me. Knowing these people who are precious and are dying has been sacred, holy, tender ground in my life, and I wouldn't trade it for any other thing. And in this time, I found this two-word motto that has been really big for me, and it's this, suffering produces. Suffering produces. In fact, at some of the most difficult points in my battle, I would run the trails in Central Oregon and I would run and I would say over and over again, suffering produces, suffering produces. Now listen and listen well. The beauty that suffering produces does not replace the pain. It, I am not pretending here. I am not playing with you. I am not telling you that losing a child is okay because God's going to give you a great testimony or he's going to help you understand people who have also lost a child. That is not what I believe. Pain is pain and it hurts. And the pain of losing my husband will last with me until I see him again. But the beauty that has come from it is standalone. And it is lovely and it is sustaining and it is rich and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't want to go back to what I experienced before. I, but this is not a one for one. But suffering does produce. It produces a beauty that's able to transform us and serve the world around us. And somehow grasping onto that beauty and gathering it up and holding it in our hands and giving it a good look is really helpful for us to be able to also coexist with the pain that's always going to be there. Um, I found that, that sorrow is pretty mobile. It's pretty light on its feet. When I started dating my, my husband now, a lot of people chimed in and said, oh, we're so happy to see you moving on. 
And it was like they felt that my finding a new love was replacing the old one. And it isn't like that at all. Suffering is able to kind of dance its way into any season, but it also brings its own sort of um, beauty to it. It's become more of a companion to me than an enemy that I have to fight. So suffering produces, and we can believe it. I love this quote from Orson Welles. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. I will never pretend that battle is fun or that it's even first choice or that the beauty that comes from it will take the place of all the pain. It doesn't. But I will say, and I will say it until the day I die, that battle has made me stronger than I ever dreamed I would be, and it has given my life purpose I never imagined it could have. And I believe that for you as well. So in these final moments, what I would love for you to do is just put your hands out in front of you. And as you see your hands in front of you, would you hold your battlefield in your hands Whatever that looks like, perhaps it's a marriage or a child or an illness or chronic pain or depression or a relationship that seems not to ever mend. Just hold that battle in front of you and look at it for a minute. And now we just want to hold this battle up in front of Jesus. And we want to ask him this one question. Jesus, what is this battle producing in me that couldn't come another way? There was a moment in the middle of my battle that I had a little vision, an awake vision of myself. And I was in a gingham dress with a little scarf on like Lucy Ricardo in the wine stomp in the grape stomping episode. And I was in the middle of a field of grapes and they were ripe and beautiful. And I had this armload of grapes and I filled my apron full of grapes and I brought it to Jesus. And I said, I brought you these grapes. Aren't they beautiful? And they're all for you. And Jesus so kindly and lovingly looked at the grapes and he said, oh, those are beautiful, Bo, but I'm not a grape farmer. I'm a winemaker. And in order for those grapes to become what I want them to become, they're going to have to be crushed. And I was praying at that moment about a thing with one of my kids and the idea of letting go of that harvest and trusting it into the hands of God who uses suffering to produce was one of the hardest things I've ever done. But a good bunch of grapes is worth what, like three bucks? A good bottle of wine, though, that's valuable and ageless. And so I am praying for you now as you hold your battle and your harvest up in front of the God that you can trust up in front of the God that you can believe in, the God who will never leave or forsake you. 
as you end this time in front of him, would you take some time to just journal through what you're facing now or talk better yet, talk with a friend, get into community and say, here's what I'm finding. Here is the pain of my battle that I really hate. And here is the beauty of my battle that I'm learning to love. And the beauty of talking with someone else about it is sometimes you're not going to be able to see what you're becoming. You're not going to be able to see what God is producing in you through the battle, but they maybe can. And so be willing now to share from your heart, here's where I'm at. Holy Spirit, work through my friends, work through my journal, work through your spirit, work through your word to show me all that you are doing in me. I can't see you, but I love you. And thank you for sticking with me through this workshop. I'm so happy to have have had this time together. And I'm praying that you will find exponential, endless, amazing beauty in your battle.